Verse 18. In the morning, as he, re, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no, no fruit come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if I say this to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by the authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it amongst themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by the authority I do these things. The parable of the two sons. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of the righteous and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believe him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Still talking to the Pharisees, the parable of the tenants. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come. Let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out in the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. 
Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is God's word. I'd like to welcome Rick up, pray for him. Father God, I just thank you for Rick. Um, I thank you for the brother that he is and the godly man that he is and the example he gives us, Lord. Just help us to hear your words through Rick today. Father God, I just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, all of life. My name is Rick. I am one of the attenders here, and I get the privilege of bringing the word this morning. It's exciting to be with you in a new space. It's my first time to be up front here. It's a little different, but I can still see everybody. Um, where I grew up in California, yes, California, <laughs> there was a, a, f- a very famous and protected species of tree. It's called the live oak. It's over on the West Coast. They don't have that kind of oak tree in other places of the country. And it's protected because it grows so slowly that if you see a medium-sized tree it's probably 150 years old, okay? Maybe more than that. And in a little intersection where I grew up, there was a protected tree right on the corner of two main intersections. Now, uh, that tree was protected. It was a large tree. The beautiful oak tree branches came all the way down to the ground. And it was probably 250 to 300 years old. It it probably predated the founding of our country. And it was parked right where the best real estate for a gas station should be. And somebody came along and poisoned that tree so that they could take the real estate. It really happened. The question is, is that what Jesus did when he cursed the fig tree? We're going to look at that and answer some questions like, just looking at this, did Jesus just have a reaction? Was he looking for better real estate in Israel? Was he looking for a spot to park some new, um, you know, I mean, he drove out the, the, uh, the um, temple changers. Was he going to give them a different spot so that they could go there? Was there a deeper meaning behind what he's explaining? And that's what we're going to look at. Let's just pray for real quick. Lord, I pray that you give me your word this morning, that you help us as we examine a very large section of scripture and the themes that are contained there as we summarize 
Father, I pray that you'd work in every heart, that your truth and your glory would be spread and magnified. Father, we pray for your kingdom to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, we're in the book of Matthew. Once again, there are several themes that go through Matthew, that the book itself was written to the Jews, that it's about a promised kingdom, that the Jews were already familiar with that kingdom, but Matthew's making a connection. Okay, he's talking about the kingdom that the Jews knew and were expecting. And Matthew is making the connection that Jesus, uh, and he's showing Jesus as that kingdom's king and Messiah, again, the one that Israel has been waiting for. Recently, uh, Trevor, uh, last week, showed us that Matthew is showing us that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and then after that the temple uh, just fulfilled specific prophecy, and he looked at that, that uh, identified the humble and servant nature of Jesus. He came in on a donkey of low stature, a beast of burden. He clarified who Jesus is, he's the king, and who knew it, which were both the people and the religious leaders. They knew who Jesus was. They knew what the claims were about how he was being described. When the people said, Hosanna, and when the people said, Son of David, those are kingly messianic statements. Nobody had a question about what Jesus said or who Jesus said he was and what his plan was, okay? The previous passages detailed further events in Jesus' mission, that he was, had gone to Jerusalem on purpose, and ultimately he was going to be arrested, suffer, die, and be raised to life. And it brought more insight into elements of the plot to stop Jesus by the religious leaders. And that pretty much catches us up, right? Let's continue on. <laughs> I joked the last time I got to speech that I had the baby passage. I'm never going to joke about the size of the passage again. <laughs> Thanks, Jared. We're going to be looking at this fairly large chunk of Scripture with three themes in mind, and you're going to see these themes repeated throughout. The idea of what we're talking about here, uh, and, and really, actually, I should say the, 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 yeah, the three themes that we're going to examine are the idea of fruitlessness, an accelerating of the plot and path to the cross, and a changing witness for the kingdom. And I think you'll be able to see those three themes in almost every one of the sections as we walk through them. The big idea that I want you to kind of carry forward, and we'll talk at the end about this some more, is that fruitlessness confirms our heart state. Fruitlessness confirms our heart status. In the first section that we're going to look at, Jesus is going to curse the fig tree. It doesn't mean he's going to call it bad words. It means that he's going to pronounce judgment on this fig tree. And uh, this is Jesus coming back from the temple after he had cleansed it. In the morning, he returned to the city. He became hungry. And seeing a fig tree on the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. Fairly simple 
narrative there, except that we don't understand exactly what Jesus means by what he does directly, okay? Jesus is hungry, sees a fig tree, there's no figs. Did Jesus pronounce the judgment on this fig tree out of revenge, out of some random feeling that he had? Or was Jesus just hangry? You know what hangry is, right? Combination of hungry and angry, okay? Was he being petulant or childish in how he approached that and said, well, I'm hungry, you don't have figs, die. No, of course not. That's not in his nature. That's not who Jesus is. It's not what Jesus does. We can understand more about this passage if we think through where have fig trees been used in scriptures as pictures? Where has God talked about them in other places? And actually, the fig tree is a common uh, picture of judgment on Israel in the Old Testament. You can look in Hosea. uh, You can look in Joel, where uh, in Joel 1, in a passage talking about judgment coming to Israel, it says, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field has perished. The fine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. This is the nation under judgment. And right directly after we're talking about this fig tree judgment in Joel is a passage about how the nation needs to repent. Okay, that's very important in helping us understand what's going here or what's going on here. There is the sense that Jesus is judging this tree. And it's a picture. The point is Jesus is making a word picture for us to see through more than just words. It's words on a page now, but then it was a practical application that something has occurred. There is a judgment, and Israel is pictured for Israel not having something. What is it that they have not had? Fruit. What do we mean by the fruit? Okay? That fig tree judgment is about the lack of the fruit of repentance and belief and faithfulness in their role as kingdom witness representatives. We know that God chose Israel to be his special people. They were his representatives of his kingdom on earth. And for 2,000 years, a little longer than that, up until this point, they have been that singular representative. Again, how do we understand that there are these things happening? Like I already said, the illusion is two Old Testament symbols of Isaiah, uh, sorry, Israel in judgment pictured as the fruitless fig tree. And it's a callback, I think, I think back to Matthew uh, 3, 8, when John the Baptist is actually saying, but uh, John the Baptist, uh, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. As for, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Similar word picture, yes? 
Okay? The idea is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We also see that there's, and this is echoed later in the book of Acts. Paul is preaching to the King Agrippa in his presence. And it says in Acts 26, so then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea. He's talking about how he has done his missionary journeys and how he has preached and tried to share the gospel. And then after he had done, tried to uh, preach to the Jews and they wouldn't hear him anymore, he went to the Gentiles. And he said, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. It's the fruit in keeping with repentance, that same idea. Fruit, repentance. This fig tree is picturing Israel under judgment for not having something. And the thing that they don't have is not so much about their works, it's about that they don't have belief at all. In this case, fruitless means faithless. Okay, very important point. Fruitless means faithless. And it's through this lens that we're going to examine those three themes I mentioned earlier in these next several passages. And I think it's not going to be super difficult once we understand what this passage means, and it's a lens or it kind of cues up the themes about what we're going to look at. Now, when I say that, I get worried that people might think that as we're approaching Scripture and how we study Scripture means that you have to have some kind of secret decoder ring. Well, Rick said that you have to look through the rest of the Scripture by this other secret passage, and you won't know what this means unless you look at this. And I want to make it clear that that's not what I mean. This is normal communication. This is normal language. This is normally how people set up. Uh, remember, Matthew is writing this for us to understand, and he's placing things in a context with one idea that follows another idea. So there's nothing special in me saying that this passage helps us understand the context for the following passages. Does that make sense? I just want that to be very clear, that nobody should think that there's some special way that if, unless you have the secret knowledge, you can't access scriptures and understand what it means. But this does help us if we understand that this is the context that Matthew has identified and is starting out with in these sections of parables that Jesus is going to give. There's uh, four or five in a row. It helps us to understand this. We have a little interlude where the disciples saw that the fig tree withered at once and they marveled. And they said to themselves, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus said, answered them and said, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not now, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The disciples seem to be actually focused on the wrong point. They said, how? how? How did this happen? Well, again, I don't understand how the disciples could ask that question, having been with Jesus this long and seen what he does already. Perhaps a better question would have been, why? Why did Jesus do this? But they were still just marveling. Oh, look what Jesus did. He cursed the tree and it died. We watched it. It's there. It died. They're marveling at this. Jesus knows their hearts, and he gives some more information to help them recalibrate what they're thinking about. Now, once again, a little side, 
This quote from Jesus is one of the most confused and abused passages in scripture, and it has been historically twisted and tortured to mean anything and everything. Weird people like to twist this verse, okay? If we're looking at context and what Jesus is saying is his whole point that you can kill trees and chuck mountains, or is his point something else? Something else, okay? Let's just, can we just get that out of the way? And when we say it like that, it becomes a little bit more obvious that Jesus isn't talking about that as the main point. The main point is that the power comes from alignment with God's will. A, God has power to do the things that are being described. It doesn't come from people. It comes from God. B, that power is accessible to us when we are praying and when our faith is in alignment with what God's will is. And frankly, that's the only way that we can ever have faith that doesn't doubt in the first place. The faith that doesn't doubt is the the faith that is already in alignment with what God does or has in mind and has his plan to be. Praying in God's will by the faith he grants you will be answered because it is God's will. Number one. And number two, the plan or the working out of the will, the faith and the power all come from God. This is not an emotional statement about faith that if I drum up enough faith, I will be able to do these things. This is about a power and plan and ability that comes from God that we do have access to. And Jesus tells us part of what that is when we say, not my will, but yours be done. Your kingdom come, right? Paraphrasing slightly. We can do away with so much of the confusion of what this people try to twist this verse to mean about doubt, about the power of faith, about your power, about exercising that power, about when we're supposed to use that power if we just understand the context. I'm not taking away from God's power by saying this. This is God's will that he will work out. And when we are in alignment and we pray for the things that, God, it, that are in alignment with God, they will happen. But it's not because I particularly prayed them. It's because it was from the perspective of that was God's will. Now, in the mystery of God and his sovereignty over the universe where Psalms talks about God sitting in the heavens and doing whatever he pleases. He is the one that rules everything. He also says that we are to pray for things. And there is a mystery that's there. There's something that can't be fully explained to how God makes that work and line up. But this power is real and is there, but the point isn't to do some flamboyant miracle. And in fact, this is what the religious leaders had been asking him to do for a very long time. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. They wouldn't accept the things that Jesus was already saying over and doing over and over and over again. They wanted some giant vision of of some extra special sign beyond what he was already doing.
The poison here in this little aside wasn't about faith itself. It's not about doubt. It's not, again, about moving mountains. I think that that's a little bit of flowery speech, that Jesus is not intending to say that we can move mountains. He's intending to say that that's how powerful the power is, but not that we're supposed to be asking for that. It wasn't about drumming up a feeling strong enough to wield some force. It was that God's power to accomplish his will is limitless. And when we are aligned with his will on his plan, we can be confident he will answer our prayers. With that said, can we move on to the next section? Because I still want us to understand those themes that we were talking about before. The idea of fruitlessness, the path to the cross, and a changing witness for the kingdom. And in this case, we see that there are two questions that come up, two sets of questions. The authority of Jesus is challenged, is what my heading says, that Jesus, now that he has passed through the city, he enters the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people come. And again, we're going to kind of summarize this. The, the religious leaders come and say, we have this a question for you. Uh, by what authority do you say this stuff? And Jesus does the old switcheroo. Let me answer that by asking you this. And we're going to see that there are two contrasting ideas. That's another kind of theme in these parables. Two visions of things are presented as contrasting. There's a question from the Pharisees. There's a question from Jesus. Jesus said in his question to them, I'll answer you by what authority I do these things, but you have to say the baptism of John, from where did it come from, from heaven or from man? They understood that, that he was setting them up. He under, they understood that he had caught their intention. They talked among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him. But if we say for man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that Jesus was a prophet. The real key here is that they knew that what Jesus was getting at was their belief, or frankly, their lack of it. That is the fruit that was missing on the fig tree, was their belief. And it came out of their own mouths. If we say this, he will say, well, then why didn't you believe John when he told the truth? And he caught them. They understood who Jesus was, what he was saying, and what the implications were. And they understood that they were caught without belief. Understand that, that they knew all of this and did it anyway and continued in their lie. And they said, we don't know. We don't know whether it was from God or man, that baptism from John. They actually did know. But they were afraid of the people. We move down again to the fruitless sons. There are two sons. Again, a contrast. Two sons. One faithful, one fruitless. What do you think? A man said, I had two sons, and he went to the first son and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. 
Well, that's kind of a strange way that a son would answer the father, even in that culture, which was the point that Jesus made. He said, I'm not. He was rebellious. But then ultimately he went and did the thing that his father told him. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but then he did not. He said words, didn't do words. Where were the deeds in keeping with repentance? Where were the actions in keeping with the words for that second son? Are you following that theme? See how this is still, we're looking at these themes as we go through here. And I know I'm summarizing. I know I'm going fairly fast. The man had two sons. One said, I'm not going to go. And then he did. The other one said, I will. And then he didn't. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, or Jesus asked. And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Go back to the passage in 18, and we start to see the hint of Jesus saying the kingdom witness is shifting from your position as Israel to something else. Jesus did not just wither and pronounce judgment on that fig tree. He said, may no fruit ever come from you again. The nature of the relationship of Israel to the kingdom of God is changing, and it's at a personal and at a national level, if we understand scripture. This was about the promise that God had made to Israel to be his kingdom representatives that we're talking about, and to these religious leaders and to individuals. All levels are what we're talking about here. Jesus really upset the religious leaders by bringing up the groups of people that he brought up. Quick note about tax collectors and prostitutes. These were the lowest of the low in religious, in a religious Jewish culture. The tax collectors were viewed as agents of Rome. They were oppressors. They were traitors to the nation of Israel. They also were mob-like thugs that took more tax for themselves using Roman um, heavies to accomplish their will, if you know what I mean. Okay, they used Roman guards to exact their payment of tax, and they overtaxed the people and kept the rest. So they were traitors, and they were dealing with the people um, unjustly. We understand their attitude towards prostitutes, okay? But before we ever got got to this passage, where did Jesus spend his time when he was visiting with the people? Where did he specifically go and spend time and already had upset the religious leaders? Tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus ate with them, went into their houses, spent time with them, taught them. Even the idea of teaching women was a foreign concept because the the 
Jewish culture had a low view of women. So the fact that Jesus would elevate these groups to say, you self-righteous religious leaders, you're not going to get to the kingdom first. (laughs) Sorry. These tax collectors and harlots that you have judged will be there first. John came to you in the way of righteousness. You did not believe him. Belief. Here again, we see that that, the point about the fig tree was to illustrate Israel's lack of belief. You did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believe him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. We get to the parable of the tenants. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press, and all the list of horrible things that happened. Did the people that were running that vineyard do what the master wanted? Did they rebel against the master? Okay, quick point. This is a parable. We don't, the people hearing this would not have had complete knowledge about what this parable actually meant because that's the point of teaching in a parable. Unless you're given the key to understand the real meaning of the parable, it's words, and you can get some of it, but you're not going to get all of it. And Jesus in this passage does not unlock that key. We really only know what this parable is referring to because we have the rest of the story that Matthew lays out. But at the time, this would not have been fully as clear as it is to us now about what is being referred to and who the elements are. The fact that they would kill the master's son. Oh, this is Passion Week. This is the week before Jesus is killed. And he's giving a clue about what's going to happen, that this is in keeping with the national unbelief of Israel for hundreds, if not thousands of years, that Israel has been faithless, that they will not believe God. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? And unbelievably, they say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him fruits of the season. It's from their own words. Notice in this passage that Jesus did make a transition from talking about you, the religious leaders right then, to them and you, your past and what happened as, the, as God had sent messengers to or prophets to Israel over time to get them to understand his plan and they rejected and killed those emissaries all the way up through to now. They didn't repent. They didn't have belief. But they said that the vineyard is going to be moved and other people are going to get the benefit of the vineyard. 
This is again another allusion to the changing of how God is going to relate to his kingdom and who will be the main messengers of that, who will be the main representatives, those kingdom witnesses, and it's shifting. We understand a little bit more as we go here, but it's, it's kind of in that passage already. Jesus said, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a quote from a Messianic Psalm in Psalm 118, if you want to go look it up. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and, one, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they, again, remember, this is a parable. They didn't have the full context. They didn't really know what it was about, but they perceived, rightly so, that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The real point here was about what is this fruit the fruit that the fig tree didn't have, the fruit that the faithless or unfaithful son didn't have, the fruit that the tenants did not have, and it was belief and repentance. Belief and repentance. And because of that, Jesus is saying, I'm bringing my kingdom to not just the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. There's a start of that whole process of God instituting his church and that the message is going to go out beyond just Jerusalem to the whole world and to the Gentiles and that Gentiles will be included in this kingdom. And the plan of salvation will not just be for Israel, but be for all peoples. This is a fantastic section to understand what's happening in the sense that it's referencing us. It's a terrible sense in which it is referencing the judgment that is going to fall on people that do not repent and believe. This is not the easy breezy, happy Jesus that a lot of people want to think about him as. These passages include real warnings real judgments that will be applied to people. And the issue is about belief and repentance. I'm going to close out with some implications for us. Fruit, faith, and moralism. I'm going to give you a little bit of context for why I'm concerned about this. Can I speak from my heart for a second? Whenever we talk about doing deeds, you know, do the works in keeping with righteousness, or sorry, repentance, do the deeds in keeping with repentance, I have the sense that people think that that means the good works that they're supposed to go do as a believer, or some other works kind of thing. There's something that people are supposed to do. And I want to make sure that we are very, very clear that what Jesus is talking about is not cleaning up your act because you can't clean up your act enough to get into the kingdom. 
The only way into Jesus' kingdom is by way of repentance and belief. And this was the stone that tripped up and smashed the religious leaders in their self-righteousness. Let me illustrate this very quickly. In the idea or philosophy of moralism, raise your hand if you've heard that term, moralism. Okay, that's almost everybody. In the philosophy of moralism, there are some key defining points of what that means. And one of those is that your behavior determines your intrinsic value. In moralism, the idea is people that are less conforming to the standard, whatever the standard is, have less intrinsic value than someone else. Conformity to the standard is what they say brings value to you as a person. Point number two, moral improvement or further conformity to that standard, moral improvement is accomplished by yourself and through yourself, your self-improvement. Thirdly, it says moral contamination is possible by people less moral than me. Less moral than self. I, in my journey, base my value on my conformity to the standard. I am responsible for conforming to that standard, and I can't be around you people because you're going to make it so that I am at a lower level with my moral superiority. Boy, who does that sound like? It sounds like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. That is exactly what they taught. That God, because God is holy, and we understand this to be true, God is holy, God does have a standard, the religious leaders felt that they needed to protect God from sin and evil. And the people that would do sin and evil... And they missed the fact that their own hearts were doing sin and evil, but they changed the standard of what the people were responsible for, the, the standard of holiness, to with this kind of wrong idea of protecting God from sin. God doesn't need protection from sin. God's everywhere and all-knowing and all-powerful, and he exists in the midst of all of our brokenness, sin, and sorrow. Am I right? God doesn't need to be protected from that, but they had the idea that that was the case. They looked down on people because they said, you're going to mess up my journey. They had a wrong view of people in this. So my heart for you guys, as we look at this and as we read through these passages, yes, the themes are there. The ideas are there about what Jesus is doing in the Passion Week. The ideas and themes are there about repentance and belief. The ideas are there about the changing witness. But part of the point that Jesus is bringing up is what was lacking? Was what was lacking your works? Somehow the moral standard? Your conformity to that moral standard? Yes, that's part of it. But really what Jesus was saying was, where's your belief? Where's your repentance? That's the most important part. It wasn't what they did because Scripture tells us that what we do, even our best things compared to the holiness of God, are like filthy rags. People at their best compared to the holiness of God are like filthy rags. 
The goal here is that I want to make sure that when we talk about doing these deeds of repentance, that we understand that we are not duplicating the message of the Pharisees and putting it into some kind of Christian context. This has implications in how we think about how we relate to other people, how we relate to other sinners, how we relate in politics in so-called Christian nationalism that says we're supposed to set up a standard so that our country can be free of these bad things because we have to protect God's name and go back to a... The idea sounds good, but you're going backwards in the understanding. We're recommitting the same mistakes as the Pharisees if we think that that's what this is really about. This is all about God's grace. Moralism says, I have to make you realize how bad you are so that somehow you stop. That's not what scripture says. That's a piece of understanding the weight of sinfulness. But it's not the true full story. Let me ask you this question before we end. What is the true, truest, highest mark of a disciple of Jesus? It's love. It's not obedience and conformity to a standard. It's love itself. Now, that doesn't let you off the hook because Jesus later says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's not letting us off the hook about how we need to obey or be concerned about that standard and God's holiness. But we have to understand that we don't even bring Conviction to other people. Every single thing about the gospel comes from God and is through God. We alone are declarers of the truth and that's it. The repentance that people have comes from God. It's from 2 Timothy. And the, Lord, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that God grants that repentance. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. I don't have to bring conviction about somebody's sin. The Holy Spirit's role is to bring conviction. In John 16, and when that Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me but concerning judgment because the rule of this world is judged. That the Holy Spirit will convict concerning sin. Part of the point of these passages is to understand that the people that Jesus is talking about, tax collectors and prostitutes, and the people that we might think are below us are actually our mission field. If we take the idea that somehow we will be contaminated by these other people, we're adopting those same ideas as those religious leaders. Jesus said, I, don't, I didn't come for those that are healthy. I came for those that are sick. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And if we left it there, that would be terrible. Because there's no path away from that. Those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul continues on, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want us to be so careful when we're talking about the deeds of repentance that we're not misunderstanding how we mean what those deeds and things are. And we'll continue that thought next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. This salvation that you have brought to us, your word, which is living and powerful and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, this grace that you give us. Father, the faith and repentance that we're talking about, your word says that all of those things come directly from you. Even the faith that we try to exhibit in belief comes from you as a gift, according to the book of Ephesians. You are awesome and amazing and powerful. We do not deserve it. Lord, help us to be declarers of the good news of Jesus and his salvation to everyone. Let us saturate the endless Northwest with news about you. In Jesus' name, amen.